0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy.
1: Good morning, everybody. You're listening to the Joey Sturgis Forum podcast. I am Joel Wanasek, and with me is A.L. Levy, as always. How you doing, A.L.? Good. How are you doing? I'm fantastic today. So Joey is where today? He's out at the Grammys in L.A.
0: doing some important stuff or something like that? Well, it's not the Grammys itself. It's uh, some Grammy voting thing.
1: Yeah, nothing important, and we don't care, and we don't miss them anyway, so no, just gonna <laughs> So today on the show, we have Chris Sernell. It's going to be Tips and Tricks, and Chris is a LA-based pop songwriter. Well, I think he writes more stuff than that. We're going to ask him in a second, but Chris I've known for many years, and I've worked with a lot of artists that have worked with Chris, and they all love working with Chris. They think he's brilliant, and he's a really awesome songwriter. So uh, I'm personally really excited to have him. So Chris, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. So, Chris, why don't you just brief everybody in our audience and tell us some of the stuff that you've worked on, and then we'll get into drilling you with questions.
2: Okay. Back in the days, I played in a band called Escape from Earth and did a solo project called Oh Hush, both of which didn't do a whole lot, but, you know, cut my teeth along the way. And then I started doing more songwriting and producing. I've worked with... CeeLo and Jason Derulo and J-Lo, so I got the lows covered pretty well. <laughs> That's important. I, I mean, it's actually a pretty good market. I mean, there's some pretty hot lows. There's Pilo too. I got to see if I can work on that one, maybe. <laughs> Not sure that's my style. This year, I just had a couple songs on a band called Hey Violet. They're signed to uh, Capitol uh, on Five Seconds of Summer's label. I did two songs on that EP. And then uh, I did a song with a girl named B. Miller on Hollywood. It's actually, I think her... I think it's her current single. It's called I Dare You. It's at Radio Disney right now. I don't know how I feel about that, but it's, <laughs> it feels much bigger than Radio Disney. I didn't think it was a, a Disney song, but I did that one. And then maybe maybe my greatest musical achievement to date in my entire life, probably ever, I produced the uh, new Poopery song and music video. Oh, that's
1: amazing, by the way. I watched <laughs> it the other day, and I, I died laughing. Very well done, by I the
2: mean, way. I mean, there was like seven different genres in the song, and it was, you know, maxed out the tracks twice over in Pro Tools. It was was
0: good times. So how did you go from being in a band that didn't do much, like you said, to writing for huge artists? It's a good question.
2: Actually, I shouldn't have said that we didn't do much, but... um,
0: I mean, you know, like. Well, my, I was just using your words.
2: I know, and I shouldn't have said it. I, I was like, man, <laughs> I started this interview off great. Just coming out of the gate, downplaying everything I've ever done. So my band, Escape from Earth, We did—actually, we did great as far—you know, we we got—we ended up with a small deal with Sanctuary, but we played Chicago. We probably sold out the Metro 20 times in Chicago, and we toured with CKY and Taproot and Switchfoot and, you know, a whole host of bands. So
0: you still did more than most bands will ever do?
2: Probably, yeah. I mean, realistically, that's—yeah, yeah but you know, and, and we, but we couldn't get over the hump, so it was after the Escape from Earth stuff, I was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to do something that's totally the opposite of what you're supposed to do in music, and I started a solo project called Oh Hush, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to put up any pictures of who's in the band, which is basically me, a couple friends helped me out, never going to play a show. Never going to tell anybody who's in the band and just do a secret band on MySpace. It was two thousand seven <laughs> eight. And, That's awesome. And and we start, you know, and I'm like, you know, I can write a good song and I can I can produce it. And before I knew it, the thing started to blow up, and it was like, who's this secret band? And and blogs and everything are, are you know hitting us up like, is it a fueled by ramen supergroup with Pete Wentz and Butch Walker and Haley from Paramore? And and it, it, we just kind of rode that wave, and we did a lot of crazy marketing things online my favorite one was when we did a uh, we used to do limited run t-shirts so we said we're going to sell 100 t-shirts and you know we can make this a marketing blog actually we're going to sell 100 t-shirts and everybody's going to get a free surprise so we do 100 shirts we made a puzzle broke the puzzle into 100 pieces everybody's got a single puzzle piece they come together online to solve some puzzle and did some blog and it leads to a new song and it was scavenger hunts and that's ultimately, so the answer to this question is ultimately that Oh Hush project kind of blew up and every label in the country wanted to not to sign us, but at least figure out what was going on, see a show, meet us. And we were making money and having a good time with it. So it was like, I'm just going to keep rolling with this. And we finally found an A&R person, Heather Peggs. She was over at Sony at the time. I'm not sure. But anyway, she made an offer and then ultimately went over to Atlantic and pitched her boss Mike Karen on me and Mike's like listen I'm not signing this effing secret band mystery person (laughs) but I love the songs and would this dude be willing to do a publishing deal so I was like you know I'm done with sitting in a van and eating dirt every day and you know playing in Podunk towns all over the world, or not the world, the country. But so I was like, yeah, let's do this publishing deal. So that's what ultimately led to my publishing deal, which led me to like, hey, I'm going to do more songwriting and production for other people. So it's it's interesting that my path as to a songwriter producer was through the artist route. So yeah, that's kind of how I got here and started doing it at least. That's
1: awesome. So let's transition and talk about some songwriting tips and tricks and things like that. So let's talk about like actual song construction and arrangement, you know, and a lot of more radio stuff. And I come from the rock radio type background and, you know, you got more of the pop radio and, you know, I know we've both done some different crossover genres and stuff like alt rock. And I know you do a whole bunch of different types of things. What sort of arrangement tricks and tips and things like that do you have when you have like a, a very, let's just say very narrow accepted, like it has to kind of fit into this box. How do you go around making that interesting for the listener?
2: Well... First of all, if uh, you don't get to the chorus in forty-five seconds, I don't want to work on the song. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's you know, it's things like that. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're talking more more construction or I mean, it, like with, with well, let's talk
1: straight arrangement. You know, okay, so say we've got like an A B A B C B or something like that, or you sure. know, what, what would be a stock radio format. How do you make something like that that people would quote expect to hear? interesting and, and alive, you know, like what tricks do you use?
2: To- totally. Okay. So sure. It's, it's verse, it's intro for four bars, verse co- pre-chorus, chorus. Like I said, get to the chorus in 45 seconds and you're rolling. I mean, I think, I, you know, those are the, there are pop parameters and, and that's what music is. It doesn't mean you can't deviate, but I think it's really always just about having something interesting happening, all the time in the song, you know, like I, I always, I, this is a terrible example in the pop world, but, you know, I always think about, like, Sweet Child of Mine's the greatest intro of all time on the guitar, one of the most identifiable intros in the world. Yes. Give me an intro, you know, it's always about, let's create an, an intro. It, it could be a vocal hook, it could be a musical hook, like a guitar thing, it could be a piano, keyboard, synth, whatever, something right out of the gate that's instantly... Grabbing a sample, you know, uh, uh, you know, like if maybe you're sampling another song or something like that, like right away having something great is is huge. When you get into the verse, it's I think one of the things that as I've gotten to be a better writer is, you know, used to be more fluff in verses. Now it's like you got to get right into the story on what you're talking about and you got to dive in with an amazing melody. It's so incredibly competitive and tough. To uh, like a lot of the stuff I do, some I'll work with artists maybe half the time, but the other half is just writing for bigger and other artists. And it's so incredibly competitive and tough to get songs cut by those artists these days because there's fewer songs than ever coming out, and there's more people than ever doing it. That you got to have amazing melody, amazing lyric right out of the gate, hooks in the verse. You know, you get to the pre, it's got the pre-chorus is the new chorus. It's got to be as catchy as a chorus, and then when you get to the hook and the chorus. You gotta have something that's absolutely unforgettable, and you know that's tough. Like I, I, I look back on songs I was writing a few years ago, five years ago, eight years ago, and I'm, I'm getting better, but it's, I keep getting better, but it's just gotten so much tougher to write a competitive great chorus because everybody can write pretty well now, and the stakes are so much higher, and again, it's so much harder to. Uh, to just write songs that'll get past everybody and make it through the gauntlet.
0: So do you have any uh, techniques or tricks or tendencies for, say, once you get past the intro, verse one, pre-chorus one, chorus one, you're back to verse two, chorus two and all that, to make the second round through more interesting than the first?
2: Well, uh, ironically, my first big cut was with CeeLo. On the uh, Twilight Eclipse soundtrack, and we wrote one verse, one chorus, and a bridge. And that's usually, like, often, even these days, I'll only write one verse and one chorus. And that's what we'll write and we'll send in to people. And then usually just fly the first verse into the second one. And, you know, because it's it's tough enough to get a song cut. You don't want to, like quote unquote, waste time on the second verse or bridge until you know somebody's interested. And usually people know if they're interested by the time they've heard through a chorus or you know they'll keep listening. So we sent it in. I'll answer your question in a minute. but And then two days later, my publisher says, hey, I'm sitting with CeeLo right now. We're cutting this song. Can you send me the instrumental? Far be it for me to bring up that we didn't write a second verse at that point. <laughs> as oh he's God. sitting with CeeLo, you know, like, oh, yeah, give us some time to work on the second verse. And then, you know, two days later, they forget about the song. So we just sent it in. Anyway, that song came out with one verse. <laughs> <laughs> flown to the second verse same as the first and uh, we had a bridge so uh, actually ironically on that one the way we differentiate it was musically once we kind of got the you know we had to we got that one done real quick but we you know second verse it's maybe it's add a musical element maybe it's strip out a musical element you might have a guitar driven first verse or something or us or you know piano maybe you strip it in the first half of the second verse you just go to maybe bass and drums or maybe it drops out for a, you know four bars or something like that that you know certainly I think on the vocal side a lot of times I'll second verses where you start adding in harmonies maybe you bring in an ad lib or two in the background you know and and lyrically it's about pushing the story forward unless you're me and you only write one verse and it happens to get cut that way in which case you just write one verse and it's, it's so it's so catchier the second time through it just becomes another hook. So I don't know if that's answering your question. <laughs>
1: that's something, Chris. I on a side tangent, I've always loved about 80s pop songs. Like if you listen to like Madonna, get into the groove, or even like early 90s, like Paul Abdul, cold-hearted, like every freaking melody in the song is just like this ridiculous hook. I mean, the verse, the chorus, the pre-chorus, it doesn't matter. Every single one of those is identifiable and you can sing.
2: Totally. And that's and I mean, but that's what and that's what pop music is, and it's it's I feel like it's even gotten you know, more so, like where if you don't have a hook every four or five seconds in a song, people are changing the station. And there's so many things to listen to these days that it's like, well, okay, great. I gave that song eight seconds, but it didn't grab me, so I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, just eight seconds. I mean, honestly, what do I even was going through when I was I was flying home the other day? I'm going through everything, just listening to stuff. Like I'm, I give it an intro. It's like, oh, I'm not feeling that one. I go, I mean crazy i'll listen to 20 seconds and move on like what am i i'm not even sure what i'm doing like what the heck (laughs) why am i changing the why don't i listen to more of this stuff i think the fact that everybody's got every single song at their fingertips these days is you know that's what makes it so competitive and hard and that's why you got to have all these hooks and if there's not a vocal happening there's got to be a cool bleep or bloop or or guitar line or or i don't know what i mean you know and that's why it's it's just gotten, you know, tougher and tougher to write a hit song or write a song that people are going to connect with at least. Well, here's a
1: good question then. What ways do you approach writing a good hook? Like what to you makes a good hook and what tricks do you use that rely on, like that can assist somebody in making one?
2: Does uh, violating somebody's copyright count here?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're not the first person that we've interviewed this month who's kind of alluded to that.
2: (laughs) I mean, I I would be lying if I didn't say that several writing sessions start with some form of the unspoken version of whose copyright can we violate today. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously, you know, like, and I, I'm, I'm partially joking, but uh, I mean, sometimes you do it outright on purpose. Uh, you write a song and you say, hey, we're going to sing, you know, this, the chorus, the right round on this song. And, you know, it's Florida and, you know, that's, that's a straight up one where you're actually giving credit. But people, you know, borrow from melodies all the time. Like, okay, let's kind of get something in this, you know, the land of this new Jason Derulo song, but let's twist it a little bit or do something a little different. I mean, it, that stuff happens, of course, you know, familiarity is super important in terms of trying to get songs past people. Usually the key is like try to be as familiar as you can without actually violating a copyright. But I mean, you know, trick wise, I feel like the number one thing is I feel like having a title right out of the gate is probably the Best thing t- that's gonna you're gonna have the best song if you can start off with a great title or a great concept, but generally the title's got to be there too. I feel like if you try to just start singing melodies or playing something, you might get a great melody, which I think is easier to get. You might have a great musical thing again, which is easier to get, but you're gonna have a song that's gonna just kind of not be about anything. I feel like my publisher, Mike Karen, uh, often says that if you have an eight hour writing session, instead of spending one hour on the title and concept and writing the song in seven, spend seven hours on the title and concept. Concept, and then you'll be able to write the song in one and have a hit. And not many people really want to do that because the title sometimes is, you know, everybody's got a, a pretty good title, but where's a special title? You know, where's one of those those titles that really is gonna grab you? And and you know, you hear it and you go, Oh, that's you know, that's already a hit song, even when you just hear the title. So I, you know, when I start a writing session, first question I'll throw out to people is anybody got any good titles? I have probably 2,000 titles on my phone at any given time. (laughs) That's amazing. Of which I'm excited about one or two maybe tops. I usually have to just start reading them off to people to see if you know, what grabs other people. I feel like that's, you know, you, it's just like anything you create or work on. You get lost. It's like, I don't, you can't tell if it's good anymore and you lose perspective. But having a huge batch of titles is huge. And then sometimes I'll, I'll have a title, kick it to somebody, and they'll have a better twist on it. Or, you know, I, I wanted a, it, it was a, you know, it might have been a sort of a negative title that somebody can flip into a positive way and suddenly that's a fresh angle on it. To me, that's huge though. If you can have a great title, you know what you're singing, you know what your song's gonna be about everything else is way easier to do after that. And like I said, not everybody does that approach, but to me, every song that I've done that way is generally, I mean, it's generally just going to be a stronger song. Then other than that, it's repetition in space. You know, in a pop song, in country, they write these, you know, choruses that are 600 words long, and you get to the title at the end, like, man, give me five words in a title and repeat it four times. You know, we're never getting back together or something. (laughs) I mean, those, those titles work for days, like, when you listen to it, it's, it's one or two lines, and you repeat it. And, uh, you know, that makes it catchier. It's easier to remember stuff with fewer—one uh, m- of my phrases I like to use is, less lyrics equals more money. So, you know— <laughs> uh, That's great. <laughs> the less lyrics you have, the easier it is to remember, the more catchy it is. So you, you, you put, you know, a catchy me- melody with a handful of lyrics or a couple lines, repeat it a few times. That's how you get a hit song. So, hey, w- get jiggy with it, right? right? I mean, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, you get, like, when when they had get jiggy with it, they're like, man, maybe we got this dope t-. Maybe they didn't even think of that that way, but it was we got something, na 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 na, nah. boom, you know, get jiggy with it, done, hit. I mean, you write the check, right? Yeah, right. It's, it's funny because some people think, like, oh, you know, the, these, it's easy to write a pop song. It's one stupid line repeated five times or four times, and, you know, but coming up with those lines that are magical with the melody that's really catchy and putting it all together is is I think, where the money's made. which goes back to the seven spent seven hours on the concept and title, and then you can write the song in one hour. I've argued for
1: years that writing a pop hit is way harder than writing the most technical, ridiculous song. I mean, unless you're like composing an entire symphony orchestra or you know, something ridiculous. but I mean, I'm not talking about like coming from a metal background, everybody's like, you know, if it's not in 20 time signatures and you don't string together 80 riffs that don't go together. Like to me, that stuff was, it was way easier to write like a Dream Feeder song than it is to write a number one because even if you write a number one, you still have to market it, get it out there, brand it, image it, get it through the gatekeepers. And getting 20 people to agree on a song being a hit in an office is an incredible totally. task
0: sometimes. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, in metal, you can use technicality as a crutch. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: You're right. I think one of the things you kind of allude to is putting 20 random guitar lines together. I have 20 riffs, I have 20 titles everywhere, you know, like everybody's got that. The really hard part is making it cohesive and clear and concise the whole way. Like that's one of the, one of the pitfalls of songwriting is, you know, you've got this song and then it's like, wait, the lyric you kind of it's it's either got too much information, it goes in a different direction, it gets weird. It's, you know, there's all sorts of different things and it's like, man, writing a really clear concise song that you can summarize in one sentence is super, super hard, you know, and... Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, people all the time go, oh, man, you just write those disposable pop songs, like, what do you guys just sit down for a couple hours and write two or three? It's like, no, he's sitting around for eight hours, try to write a verse in chorus, you know, and then then come back to it a few <laughs> days later. I mean, you know, sometimes they come quickly or sometimes it takes longer. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it's harder to be within all the parameters of what pop music needs to be. And then, like you said, running it through the gauntlet of, of you know, you first got to get it through your publisher or or somebody, then a manager, then an A&R person. Then they have to play for their boss. They have to play for their boss's boss. Then it's going to go to the artist. Artist is probably not going to like it. The label's going to have to, I mean, every cut, that you get as a miracle these days. It, it's, it's seemingly impossible every time you go, how am I gonna actually get this thing cut? And then when it comes out, you're like, man, the all, amount of stars that had to align for this thing to happen is absolutely crazy. So it makes you wonder, like some of the songs that are amazing that just
1: never see the light of day. I mean, I think of some of the artists that I've worked with over my career, and sometimes I'll write like a really cool song with a band, and then the band will break up in a week, and they'll just never get off the ground, or they'll kick out the
2: singer, or and it's just kind of depressing in a way. So. Totally. I mean, I mean, your catalog, I'm sure it has has a hundred songs that are great that never will be heard. In my catalog, I mean, I have I go through it, I'm like, man, there's a lot of seeming hit songs in here. And you know, people are just never gonna hear it, which is which is you know part of why I, have, I keep my artist side alive a little bit. Like, okay, you know what? There's still there's still opportunities to put this out myself and and get songs out there, or. That's where one of the other things I've done is you know trying to write more directly with artists. When you do that, there's a better chance it's going to come out than with when when it's through a label where you have to go through all the hoops. And sometimes it's just like, you know, you feel like as a songwriter like, man, I wrote 150 songs this year and, you know, four of them came out. <laughs> like, okay. And you're and you're like, yeah. and that's a good percentage. <laughs> when you were working
1: with Mechanical Kids back in the day, it's a band that I had developed and gotten signed and worked with and then you know they went to a bunch of songwriters and that's how I actually met Chris this is many years ago like what 2008 or 9 Did you ever hear the song Love Like Thriller? Yes, I did. I didn't work on that one, but I heard it. That song to me was always like, I couldn't believe the label didn't think that was a single. I'm like, that's a hit. I mean, that song is amazing. The hook on that is retarded. When I play that for people, because I have it on my hard drive, because I love the song so much, they're like, oh my God, that song's ridiculous. Like, why is that not released? And that's just being a perfect case in point example of an amazing song that unfortunately no one will ever hear unless somebody picks it up and cuts it.
2: Sure, I mean even you know the whole the whole album that Sean did and, and stuff I worked on with him, stuff you worked on with him, it's just sitting I mean it's sitting on my hard drive, your hard drive and his and you know like there's there was a lot of great music. I mean some no one will ever hear those songs and there's some incredible songs. Totally. And and it's like Man, and that's where like some days when I think about that, I go, man, I, it's a little depressing if you start to think about it too much. Like, boy, I wrote <laughs> literally like I, you know this year I'm probably at 120 songs or something, and I've had like you know maybe maybe like six come out or five or six or seven. I mean, which is a like <laughs> that's a pretty good percentage. Six cuts in a year, major label, are it's pretty solid. I'm feeling good about it, but I'm like, you know, the other. Maybe half of those hundred and whatever are are mediocre or whatever, not good enough.
0: but uh, so let's talk yeah. about the amount of songs that you write in order to get to good sure. ones or ones that other people yeah. think are good. So you're saying that it's basically like one percent of your songs or less that get that actually make it through. I
2: mean, it's totally possible that I just suck
0: too. <laughs>
2: so, I, you know, 1%, maybe not quite right. I would say it's like 5 or less, though. 5% or less is probably about the number. I also sometimes just make beats and tracks. So that's a different world. I mean, it's it's the same world, but it's also a little bit different. You know, I might write, 70, 80 songs and then do 30, 40 tracks or something like that. Tracks have a little bit different kind of life. You can kind of write to them multiple times and all that. But at the end of the day, percentage-wise, yeah, I mean, 5% would be a great year. I think my publisher just sent around an email. He said a girl wrote 250 songs last year. And he said, of the first fifty, none of them were good. The second fifty, like two or three were good. Third fifty, four or five. Next fifty, five. anyway. He said, he, I think he said he placed thirteen over two hundred and fifty songs. So what is it? Wow. What is that? That's like, great. So that's maybe like three percent or something. Yeah,
0: that's under five percent.
2: Yeah, I mean, here's the deal: if if you get if if any of those become a hit, and look, it's not even it's a numbers game, but you could place one song in your entire life, and if it's you know a number one Jason Derulo hit or Adele's new single or something like that, you just made $7 bucks and you can retire. So there's something to be said for, like, you know, some people say, like, listen, if you have one cut a year and it's a top 10 song or something like that, who cares? That's that's great. You know, as a songwriter, you might want to kill yourself the other 364 days that you wrote songs that didn't get placed. But, you know, you could also have 100 cuts that, that make, you know, th- these days if you have an album cut, you, and you're just a writer not a producer you're not making a whole lot of money so it's you know you might get 100 cuts and you make 50 bucks a cut because the album sold ten thousand
0: copies so how often do you write almost every day i was gonna ask that
1: too because he's got a really cool routine that i at least sean uh, sean bow who's a mutual friend of ours it told me that well, chris you write a song every day right
2: yeah i'm writing every day um so it could, like I said, it could be making tracks. I'm actually, I felt like I was writing too many songs and it, not making enough tracks recently. So I've been kind of shifting the focus. But I mean, I work five and a half, six days a week. And I'm either in a writing session with other people, finishing. Since I produce as well, some days are like, let's. I'll give you an average week. It might be right on Monday, a f- song from scratch. Tuesday, build the track, mix it put it together, finish it. Uh, Wednesday, make a beat. Thursday, write a song with somebody to that beat. And then Friday, you know, uh, maybe go have a, a session with an artist or something like that and just write a rough one. And then maybe the work tape's good enough to play for people or something like that. So because I produce... Uh, and do a lot of production as well. You know, the maybe an extra day. I'm still working, but I'm maybe finishing the song I wrote from the day before.
0: So, with the amount of work that you put out, I'm sure you're not always feeling a hundred percent inspired. How do you get around? Writer's block, or how do you just keep it fresh all the time, or do you just write no matter what because it's a discipline and a habit, and some days are good and some are whatever.
2: I think it's it's partially what you just said. It's it's just showing up every day. I like I said. I think a couple of things that are super helpful are. Having a thousand or two thousand titles in a Evernote that I can look at at any given point. I also just have like a list of inspiring songs. Like every time I hear something, I'm like, "Man, that's kind of cool. Maybe if I took the drums from that song, like that drum groove, and you know, put it to uh, uh, you know, ukulele, not a ukulele, whatever, over that, or you know, I'll have like a list. or, Or I also have a huge library of songs to sample. You know, like it could be like, man, I love this little horn part in the beginning. It's an intro and it's naked. There's nothing around it. So I can chop it, take that horn thing, chop up the horns. I have... Even, like, lists of songs to flip, which means, like, uh, for example, Flo or Right Round is a good example. They took the chorus of Right Round of the 80s the song and, and rewrote a song around that. So it's like, oh, that's a, a cool line. You know, Pitbull does that. Pitbull and fluoride do that stuff all the time. I feel like I have so much stuff, and I'm so kind of backlogged at any given point on songs I have to finish and things like that, that... Writer's block doesn't really necessarily happen. It's I have so many different ideas, it's but it's really just about finding what idea do I want to work on today? Some of it's just by necessity like man, I got to get this song to the label. They need to get it. I need to get it to this artist. I got to get it to my co-writers. I got a session today. And when you're working with people between two or three people in any given room, somebody's got an idea for something. The other side of this, too, is there's specific needs. Like, my publisher will say, hey, you know, Darulo's looking for new songs in the lane of, you know, Michael Jackson off the wall or something like that. So we go, okay, let's pull that up as inspiration, start playing guitar on that lane. So there's, there's projects like that. There's film and TV projects that are, you know, same kind of things, like we need a song that's maybe about that. So, I mean, maybe that's demystifying music or maybe making it a little bit more of a job in some respects, you know, you don't just always walk in and go, Oh, what am I feeling today? And what am I gonna write? You know,
0: but No, that's that's good. I don't think people should be that way. I think that if you're only waiting for that kind of feeling, you're gonna write very infrequently and your overall level will be a lot lower than it would have been if you just got in there every totally. day and figured out a way to get yourself inspired.
2: Totally. You get, you, you just get yourself inspired and just keep doing it. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, writer's block doesn't even really feel like it's a thing to me. I, I have so many, and I'm not saying they're all good ideas. In fact, most of them are probably bad, but I've got ideas for the next two or three years to keep me busy. Even if I didn't come up with any new ones, you know, it's just about finding, I mean, the key is sifting through them and going, Oh, that's, that's maybe a really cool one or a fresh one, or wow, that suddenly works. You know, I have all these titles and ideas that suddenly works for some certain artist. And and it's about, you know, kind of marrying, okay, that artist and that title, that could be great. And then let's bring in this, the other, you know, who's the right person to write that song with. That's another key component are kind of putting together the sessions with the right people and the right chemistry.
1: How do you keep up with the, incredibly fast moving market. For example, like when I'm producing a record or mixing or whatever, I get so engrossed in working. Like the last thing I want to do is come home and listen to music after grinding for 14 hours every day. And it's just like, sometimes, you know, like a new style comes in and you have to learn how to do it and you have to get it and understand it and be able to write it or else you're going to miss out on that entire client base. How do you keep up with that stuff? Is there a
2: trick to it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you're right. Cause you're, you work in music all day and then it's like, man, do I really want to go listen to the top 40 music right now? Or what, you know, like totally. I think part of it is when you're working with other people, you're constantly learning tricks from people and just from being in the room with them, you know, half of who I am is the, is the sum of everybody else that I'm working with. They'll play you songs. Maybe you go to anr meetings and, and the NRs will go, Hey, you know, we're here, we're looking for stuff for uh, Jordan Fisher on Hollywood right now. And here's, you know, here's three of the new songs you just cut. So they'll play stuff. So you can hear that. I usually run tape in the meetings. I uh, don't tell anybody. Oh, darn. <laughs> podcast. I'm in trouble now, but you know, it's, It's hearing what labels, having them play you songs. My publisher's great. He sends around a monthly letter that's basically like, hey, this is what we're listening to. And there's like seven people at the company, eight people. Here's what we're listening to. This is what we think is cool. These are what we think are going to be the next trends. And, you know, in A&R people, that's their job is to figure out what the next trend's going to be. You know, sign the next thing and you have songwriters working on the stuff that that's one of the things writers are always chasing. They hear what's on the radio today and they go, Oh, let's write that. It's like, no, that's done. That stuff was written a year ago and coming out today. You need to be in, you know, it's right now we got to be writing for 2017 almost. It's almost a joke. Like are like, yeah, we're looking for the 2020 version of, uh, you know, TLC's waterfalls or something. I don't know. But the key is you got to stay ahead of the curve on all this stuff and, and figure out what's coming next. So, Again, my publishers kind of, they help tell us what they think is cool. And, you know, I think that's part of it. I listen to Spotify, you know, make sure I keep my ear on the Viral 50 and various playlists. I go to Hype Machine probably almost every day and just kind of see what's on the top of that chart. Yeah, I mean, I, what you're bringing up is huge. I, I do that stuff every day, and I I feel like I need to spend usually between 30 and 60 minutes, almost a day, be it, it could be just while I'm working out, listening to this stuff. It could be just kind of while I'm setting up in the studio for the day or driving or something. But I pull up Hype Machine and Spotify and go through stuff my publisher sends and constantly like, where are things at and what do I need to be doing? Because you're right, you have to stay. The trends in pop music change like, I mean, it's stupid how frequently they change and if you're if you locked yourself in a cave for six months and didn't listen to anything you'd come out with stuff that's like oh it's so dated sounding <laughs> just six months later I mean I <laughs> listened to some of the like 2011-12 pop like the Kesha and some of that stuff it's like man it sounds really dated I mean I loved it Katy Perry even that, that you know like the Teenage Dream albums was one of my favorites when it came out it sounds kind of dated now and you know it's just you gotta stay on top of the curve so By doing the things I just mentioned, that's that's a big part of it.
1: It really does blow my mind how fast music moves. I'll give you an example. I was at the bar the other day, and I've been working on a lot of metal and a lot of um, alternative rock, and keeping up with that. And I kind of like not listened to anything EDM or hip hop recently, and I couldn't believe how much in just like six months of being away from that. It's like everybody was doing a saxophone breakdown, and you know, there's trends like deep house, or not deep house, but uh, like festival house, and now it's just moved. And I know that's already dated. So it's like, it's moved so quick. It just blows my mind sometimes.
2: Sure. I mean, like, yeah, now it's Tropical House. And then I just heard, well, no, Bieber's album, yeah. Tropical Housey. So that's going to be done in three months. And so it's, what's the next thing? I mean, so it's like, you either got to stay, uh, there's two approaches. One is you got to kind of predict what's going to be next or the alternative, which is kind of what I try to do. Cause I, I, I'm like a guy that came from a rock background who loves pop music. I'm not like, I'm like, I, I can hang with the urban dudes, but I'm not like a super urban guy. I'm just a white guy from the suburbs of Chicago. So it's like, you know, I, 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 so my goal is like, maybe I can do something that's different. It's not really anything. It's not really a trend. It's just sort of cool. I mean, that's my goal. I, I, I'm sure i you know, fail a lot of the time, but hopefully occasionally I'll nail it. Like, you know, just bringing together my various influences and like, you know, it may not be, it's not a trend that's happened. It's not necessarily the next trend, but. It's just cool, and maybe it's just you know that's where you can kind of create a trend. That's obviously really hard to do, but you know sometimes that's the the lane I'll try to shoot for personally. Yeah, definitely.
0: Last question do you do you place any importance on music theory, or do you do everything by ear?
2: I'm a I took piano lessons as a kid. Uh, I took guitar lessons, so I can I can read notes a little bit. I don't really do it ever. I pretty much am. I think it's probably by ear mostly, but I I know enough theory to get by, and I think it's, you know, I can do a seventh chord or something like that. It's one of those things where these days I think it goes either way. If you're you're trained, great. If you're not, who cares? It doesn't matter, I don't think. There's tons of people I know where literally I feel like these days if you're able to, quote, unquote, play the computer – The computer's an instrument these days, just even with chopping up samples. You can find MIDI packs, you know, and just pop in the MIDI into some sound that you think is cool, program your drums, chop it up. Either way, if you're if you have the skill, great, I think it's helpful. If you don't, great. I think you can make it work either
0: way. And I completely agree.
2: Piano roll ninjas. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean I always tell I like I see people that are amazing piano players. A friend of mine comes over all the time, the guy can play Piano up and down, flight of the bumblebee backwards, whatever. He's awesome. And then when I'm having <laughs> him play stuff, I'm like, cool. Can you just add that piano thing in quarters, just like plong, plong, plon? I mean, it's one note. It's hold. It's one finger. You know, most of the stuff is just that's. I mean, the, you know, it's four chords and the truth. Yeah, that's totally. what it is. And it's it's you're not doing anything that's crazy. I mean, when was the last time a pop song had something that was like, holy cow? technical, you know, somebody, nobody can ever play that. It's, it's not in the technicality, it's in the creativity and how you put it together, I think. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for coming on. It was a great
1: conversation and thanks for sharing all of that great knowledge with us. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, uh,
2: hopefully some of that's useful.
0: I believe it will be. (laughs)
1: Yes, definitely. It was really awesome yeah. talking to you, and thank you again for taking the time to uh, come in and chat with us. Cool, man. Thanks for having me, and uh, yeah,
0: anytime, guys. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit ibanez.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy Podcast and subscribe today.